from KQED. A brand new poll confirms the belief that Jerry Brown still has a pretty good barometer on the mood of his fellow Californians. That is, unless somebody steps in with a fight over a legacy issue, climate change, maybe. That's the California Politics Podcast for the week ending July 31st. Along with Marisa Lagos, I'm John Myers from KQED News. Anthony York is away this week, and I got to say, I was in San Francisco with you this week, Marisa, and I made a rookie mistake. The heat of Sacramento, (laughs) I was not prepared for the cold of San Francisco, and I'm still regretting it (laughs) to to this day. What a rookie. Yeah, I mean, it just cooled down. It was actually really nice here for a few weeks, but I I did just... uh, was driving across town and watching a family of tourists shivering, probably poor souls from the Midwest, thought we had summer here. No, no. There's all kinds of climate, which is my really lame transition to topic one <laughs> this week. <laughs> actually, like don't d- actually, don't confuse climate and weather, people will tell me, but that's another podcast. Okay, so th- this week, uh, one big topic. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, climate change and some polling and what it might mean for 2016. And then after that, uh, we're going to do kind of an admiration of my my dad's favorite TV show, Jeopardy. I'm going to call it political potpourri. I mean, because let's face it, there's not a lot of big California political news this time of year. But some of you loyal listeners, thank you on Twitter. You suggested some topics we could chew on. Some of them we're going to probably pass on, <laughs> yeah. but some of them we're going to talk about. So. I enjoyed how how you know excited the response was. I feel like it it tells me that our listeners are desperate for this podcast because there is so little happening. <laughs> well, then let's try to not uh, let them down too terribly in, in making something out of nothing. But let's um let's talk about climate change and the poll that came out this week. So it came out Wednesday night from the nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. Uh, my own headline that I wrote for it really was that the governor and Democrats are pushing some big expansions uh, of California's climate efforts, and Californians seem to be on board. But I, I do think we want to talk about uh, some signs this week about that that's not all sealed up either in the Capitol or perhaps uh, next year. So let's talk about it for a moment. The poll asked a number of questions about uh, California's efforts to combat climate change. As we all know, Those efforts are best known through the state's landmark 2006 law that rolls back greenhouse gas emissions. So in the poll, 79 percent of those surveyed say climate change is a threat to the state's future. More than half of them call it very serious. Sixty four percent say that climate change has contributed to the drought. Sixty nine percent still support the goals of that 2006 climate change law, which mandates that cut in uh, carbon emission levels. This is where things get interesting, though, I think. The poll also finds broad support in principle for what could be called a doubling down of those climate goals. And that was an effort that Governor Jerry Brown outlined in his January State of the State speech. I propose three ambitious goals to be accomplished within the next 15 years. First, increase from one-third to 50 percent our electricity derived from renewable sources. Two, and even more difficult, reduce today's petroleum use in cars and trucks by up to 50%. Three, double the efficiency of existing buildings and make heating fuels cleaner. Now, that's a lot. And, it is. And, and those are not small tasks, I think, as the, as the governor uh, made it clear. So in the poll, 69% of adults support those new 
tighter carbon emission levels. Mm-hmm. 62% of likely voters say that. Then on the other goals, um, half as much petroleum use, 73% support. Energy efficient buildings, 70% support. Renewable energy, 82% support. Uh, there's some partisan differences, but I mean, let's let's talk about the obvious here, right? I mean, those are those are great numbers. They are. And I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said in principle, right? I mean, I think I think for Democrats and the governor and scientists and um, this this is really good. I think it's good that the the sort of court of public opinion agrees that these are important issues and they agree in theory with how to tackle them. You know, as with anything, the real question is, will they support the actual policies being put forth? Um And I think that that's where, you know, the nitty gritty is going to get. But I I do think you're right. I mean, this is, you know, comes a week after the governor was in in uh, Rome at the Vatican meeting with the pope and world leaders on climate change issues. As we've discussed before, this is really among the issues that Brown has carved out as a legacy. And I think that um, seeing these numbers, it it tells you in part why, you know, the, the governor is you know, he, he's an ambitious and, and smart man, but he's also pragmatic. And I think that they saw the writing on the wall with this, both from a policy and a political perspective. And that's one of the reasons that he's really kind of put so much of his energy and, and potential legacy behind this. I think that it's interesting when you look at uh, what Brown said in that comment that we just played from the state of the state and you measure it to where we are now. So he laid out those goals and Democrats in the legislature, especially in the state Senate, took him up on it. So there are two <laughs> yeah, bills right. in particular. Yeah, there are two bills in particular that uh, we're going to be watching in August and September, early September. Uh, one of them is SB 32. That's the um, new um, extra cut in carbon emissions mm-hmm. uh, from State Senator Fran Pavley, the author of the original 2006 measure. And then there's the bill by Kevin DeLeon, the president pro tem of the state Senate, SB 350, which encompasses the other issues, which is less petroleum use, uh, <clears throat> energy efficient buildings and renewable energy. And, yeah. you know, there was a back and forth uh, that I had with a few people in the world of politics after the poll came out about exactly how to interpret those numbers. I think that anyone could safely say that what we are looking at in this PPI is a baseline. It's absent a political narrative back and forth. This is a baseline of where the public would be in concept on these ideas. Also, right, but I think it's important to contrast that with a national conversation where we're still talking among policymakers about whether the science even exists, right? And I think so I think that from that perspective, California is really starting from a different place than a lot of the national and international conversations. Um, and, and with the electorate in that place, not just, you know, policymakers. I mean, even I think, you know, while we've seen and I'm sure we're going to talk about this a little more, but, <clears throat> you know, ad campaigns come out, the, the oil and gas industry pushing back. Um, you also see comments from, you know, S- Senator Bob Huff, for example, in the Senate, um, who's been leader there for a while you know, saying it's not that he disagrees with, again, all of this in theory. It's how do you get there? And so to me, that really carves out the conversation we're having in California as different than the one we were having even 10 years ago or nine years ago over AB 32 in some ways. Well, let's talk about the opposition since you, you referenced it there. So earlier this week, a group called the California Drivers Alliance posted a TV ad, uh, whether it's on the air or just online right now, I think is a is a fair question. Uh, the alliance used it's, to be 
quietly funded by the oil industry. But you look at their website now, it is in great big letters operated by the Western States Petroleum Association. So there, now we yeah. know it's it's theirs. So let's- uh, <laughs> we, we don't let's, have to tell you. <laughs> so let's talk about that ad. And here is the ad. And I think the the approach and the phrasing of this ad is 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 fascinating from politics. Here it is. If you can afford a Tesla, then this message won't really matter to you. But the California Gas Restriction Act of 2015 will restrict the use of gas and diesel in California by 50% over the next 15 years. Some say it's about state regulators limiting how far we can drive by rationing gas, increasing costs, or penalizing drivers for using too much gas. But really, it's about making it harder for regular people to drive to work and drive home each day. Yikes. So let's, let's, so, <laughs> na- so the California Gas Restriction Act of 2015. Right. I mean, that is just. <laughs> and the Tesla opening. I mean, <laughs> yes. Well, but the Tesla opening is a great moment to me in, in, in making this a bit of a class issue, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, to me, that's actually the, the smartest part of, of the ad. I mean, I feel like the rest of it, I understand they're just sort of, starting the narrative here and I, and I can see where they're going. I'm not clear that this ad in itself is going to, you know, foment voter outrage um, because it's it's still vague. Right. I mean, it's saying they want you to drive less, but that's I mean, that's not completely what we're talking about. Right. And and I mean, it, it sounds like the, the, the SB 350 is like the gas police, like they're going to come to your house and like measure how much it's going to be like water metering. Right. Like, <laughs> so I'm not right. it, it, it's an interesting opening salvo. I know, you know, clearly this group has a lot of money. I'm sure that they're polling and and they have a lot of smart people there. Um, but it does really seem like an opening salvo to me, not the sort of end point of where they're going to really kind of drive this home in the coming months. Well, and and let's go back to the poll for a moment, because, right, I mean, you and I kind of both feel like, you know, there's that, you know, subtle class moment about talking about Teslas. I mean, notice we didn't talk about um, uh, cheaper electric cars, but that's another story. But if you if you look at the PPIC poll and you get into the crosstabs, as uh, all of us political junkies know, the subsets of people that they ask the questions the uh, on the question of cutting petroleum and half the petroleum use in cars, uh, it polls well among the working poor. Sixty four percent of people who uh, make forty thousand to eighty thousand a year, which is kind of a middle class range, uh, they support it. Under forty thousand dollars a year income, eighty one percent support it. Now again, it's a it's it's a conceptual number and it's a or a baseline number of what you ever want to call but if you're the oil industry you've got your work cut out for you and so you have Mm. to get into things like the rest of the ad right the notion of gas rationing or something else that's going to hurt your life hurt your ability to earn food for your family yeah i mean i think that as you mentioned that the income numbers are really interesting because i think historically it's been a lot easier you know for folks at the top end of of the income sphere to to support more environmental policies. I think it, again, speaks to how seriously it seems like the electorate is really taking this issue. Um, and then, you know, as I said before, the rubber meets the road when we start talking about the real implementation of this. You know, in, in the past, a lot of California's policies have, have pushed national fuel standards and things that obviously impact the consumer but aren't necessarily what they're paying, you know, 
when they go to the gas pump or what they're being told how much they can drive. Um, and I do think that what Democrats who support this are going to focus on is, is all that other stuff, right? They're going to say, well, we want to talk about more, you know, transit and high, um, you know, <clears throat> development around transit and, and getting people out of their cars in ways that aren't going to stop them from getting to work, obviously. Um so, yeah, I think, you know, there's going to be an in and clearly people who have less money are less likely to not just buy a Tesla, but to buy any fuel efficient car because the newer the car, the more fuel efficient it is. So I think that some of those points have a potential to resonate. But again, like it, it's I don't know that that ad is going to do all the work for them in the next two months. Well, and, you know, this was kind of the week of all of this coming together. It's it's always fascinating how, you know, you get a poll at the same time you're getting people talking about things. So you got that ad earlier in the week. And then there was a, a, a column that I just wanted to highlight um, from a, a well-known writer and a, and a critic of a lot of the of a lot of the environmental policies that the Democrats have pursued, uh, Joel Kotkin, uh, who was writing this particular column on the um, – conservative leaning uh, business leaning website I don't you know they'll take issue yeah. with that uh, fox and hounds <laughs> and he was taking he was taking aim at Kevin DeLeon the president pro tem of the state mm -hmm. senate uh, mm -hmm. on this bill SB 350 and uh, you know criticized this as environmental puritanism and and then uh, the, the the quip that I thought where he, where I thought was interesting he says how does DeLeon's priority on climate change help his two-thirds latino district where a quarter of households were under the poverty line in 2014, unless you fear that rising seas will flood the eastern parts of Los Angeles in the near future, a radically decarbonized economy offers limited benefits to a district where 40 percent of residents don't even have high school degrees. And I think that, you know, whether those kinds of criticisms or arguments take hold is another thing, but they, they do get back to this issue of, you know, what's the affordability factor? And if you're the oil industry, that is your place, right, is to say, mm -hmm. what is the real bottom line impact? And then I and, and that gets me to where this issue now is with SB 350. Yeah. So but again, you know, I think that some of that it may be sort of true in theory. But, I, you know, I think what someone like the Senator DeLeon would say is like it's extremely, you know, you could argue it's extremely short sighted. Right. It, we're not talking about just tomorrow. We're talking about generations to come. Um, sure. But also this issue that SB 350, I mean, as I kind of hit on before, you know, we're talking about reducing petroleum use. OK, fine. Talk about the consumer angle there. Requiring half of the state's electricity to come from renewable energy sources. That's the state is already moving in that direction. And the big um, companies like PG&E and SDG&E and all the other gas and electric companies that did push back on that, you know, 15 years ago are really coming on board and, and have become in a lot of ways the leaders in those areas. So, you know, yes, will consumers potentially pay more for these? Maybe. But in a lot of ways, we're seeing because these big companies have embraced them that, they're being able to offer greener alternatives that are on par with what we're paying now. Um, and then the other one, you know, is about <clears throat> building more efficient buildings and 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 um, doing infrastructure investments that increase, you know, the the efficiency of buildings. Again, yes, if you're rich, you can afford to put solar panels on your roof. But we've also seen the state turn around and use the money that it's raised from you know, AB 32 and other issues to put it back and to subsidize these options for lower income people, which then help them lower their electricity bills. So I think consumers 
you know, there's a there's a lot of different angles here for consumers. And I don't think that just because you're poor or a renter is going to mean forever that this won't benefit you in some way, actually. So it it's an interesting debate. But I, I again, I think that there's going to have to be a very a much more sort of um, specific line drawn from opponents to people's checkbooks in order to really convince because these are for like as you mentioned these are strong poll numbers um, they are they are but let's let's talk about though them in the not. context of well no let's talk about them in the context of where they go next because uh again the legislature has this bill pending in front of it um in talking to people uh in and around sacramento over the last few days what you get the sense is is that what the you know, the oil industry and their alliances want to do is they want to modify the De Leon bill. Mm-hmm. They, 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 don't, yeah. they don't believe they can kill it because of the Brown <laughs> comments and his support for it. But they point in particular to, to part of this. And that is if you go back and listen to the governor's state of the state speech, what he talked about were getting to those goals and suggested that maybe you could do it incrementally. Uh, the De Leon bill puts that number into the bill specifically about absolutely mm-hmm. that's what we're going to do. And so they want that kind of room. They're not trying to, I don't think, I mean, I think they would love to kill the bill. Right. Uh, but, but they're just trying to get it to some place. And so I think that this campaign, yeah. this television ad campaign, and we're going to probably hear more of this, is aimed at that subset of Democrats who may have problems with how far the more progressive liberal wing of the party has gone. Yeah, and I I would not be surprised if we saw these actual numbers dialed back in this legislation. Um, Because, you know, as much as the governor might support them, he's a man who compromises. And I think that you do have a a pretty wide swath of Democrats, particularly in the Assembly, who are going to be hearing from different constituencies. Um, You know, one thing we haven't mentioned that was really interesting in the poll was the different the party differences. uh, in these numbers and how what was the number uh, of, of Republicans who said climate change is never we're never going to see the effects of it. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we haven't even gotten to that part. But yeah, right. There's a there, there's a skepticism that is unusual for the rest of California. But uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that on those numbers, then you see where perhaps, you know, more moderate Democrats, Democrats in swing districts could have, you know, enough of a fight on their hands looking forward to the next election where they might be a a little more open to softening some of these goals. I think it will be interesting, though, to what you've just alluded to about the rest of the numbers about climate change, um, about where uh, legislative Republicans and other Republicans in the state uh, come down on uh, whatever the final result of this is, because uh, to, to what Marisa's sitting here talking about, Uh, PPIC asked this question, when will the effects of climate change begin? Overall, 62% of the Californians surveyed say climate change effects have already begun. Of Republicans, only 37% say that the effects of climate change have already begun. And they they are on their own on this, independents, Democrats, other groups. Um, And then there were 10% of the people overall in the poll who said climate change's effects never will happen. But among Republicans, 31 percent of Republicans and no other subgroup comes even close, said the effects of climate change will never begin. Thirty four percent of likely voter Republicans said that. And then when you try to figure out who those people are and it's it's a little hard, but you go into these subgroups, these crosstabs, um, 
generally white male inland California, they're the ones who come the closest to this group that say climate change's effects will never begin. And I and again, I think you raised this point, Marisa, for this reason, that whatever comes out of this negotiation about what the state does over climate change, we may see some of the discussion again uh, in 2016, which I want to pivot to in a moment, and how Republicans respond to that uh, given the rest of California's feeling about this, I think says a lot about their um, their happiness or sadness electorally next year. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, let's be clear, you know, <clears throat> Republicans are what I think around 28 percent of, of voters. Right. So 30 percent of that. I mean, that's not a huge, huge share of the electorate, but <clears throat> It does speak to some beliefs, priorities, whatever. And I think it shows, too, how Democrats on at least this issue are more likely to sort of capture the independent vote and, and, and get that, which is, you know, numbers that have been growing. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is one of those issues that obviously whatever happens with SB's 32 and 350, it's not the debate's not over. Right. And and we're going to see the governor keep pushing these and we're going to see this play nationally in the presidential race. And we're going to see, I think, a lot of discussion about, you know, these like AB 32, these bills set broad goals, but how they're implemented is really going to happen more in the regulatory process and in future legislation. So, you know, kind of to the earlier point, yes, I think the oil industry and other opponents are going to try to dial these back, but they're also looking forward to try to really shape public opinion for the future and to see how this, you know, how the, they can limit some of these um, goals potentially or, or limit, you know, the sting of them on these industries. Um, you know, and this is I'm I'm saying all this, assuming it gets through the legislature. It, well, it, it could not. Let's. It could not, but also it could get through the legislature in a in a form that the oil industry doesn't like, and that's what I wanted to talk about. Because then what? I mean, there is right. the potential, and there is the ease, more easy, easier than it has been in generations. As I kind of keep talking about this forever on the podcast, <laughs> uh, to get something on the ballot, they could put a referendum on the ballot, yep. and they could try to have that fight. Now, whether their odds are are even possible or just insanely bad, depends on who the electorate is and how the issue is framed. Uh, but, you know, you could have a big battle royale. Big oil has money. Um, you could have people who are considered to be moderates having to decide, do they think this goes too far? Again, the incremental issue. You yeah. could put the governor on the issue. The governor's got $23 million in his political accounts, as we saw this week. you got Tom Steyer, who has anything he wants out of his wallet <laughs> right um so you could have a you could have an electoral fight over this if um if there's not some uh way to deal with it and then again but if you're the oil industry though you've really got to measure your odds there and whether or not you want to spend I, yeah. 30 40 50 60 million dollars on that campaign well and like you got to look at these numbers not just the money but the the sort of political fallout from that like you know i don't think you know, <sighs> I don't feel like the oil industry, it's fair to like say they're like big tobacco in California because we have homegrown, you know, oil companies like Chevron that really want to portray themselves as good neighbors and good parts of the community. And and I think are a little more entrenched here on that level than than maybe you've seen on some of like the tobacco tax fights, if you want to compare it to another industry. So, you know, I think that, that that group would think very long and hard about what kind of 
fight they want to pick, what these poll numbers show, and how they could frame it in a way that wouldn't just sort of alienate, you know, what, 70% of the voting public. Um, and, and yeah, of course, the money issue. But, you know, when we're talking about this, the reason you're going to the ballot box is to protect your market share. So there's a lot right. of other things. on. There's a lot of other issues kind of at play here. So it'll be fun to watch it, and we'll see kind of where that goes. Um, so let's uh, let's do a little bit of our side dish, our weekly side dish, where we kind of talk about small topics that we think are are uh, worth noting. Um, Marisa, you get to go first. You can find her on Twitter at mlagos. What's uh, what's your side dish? Well, you know, it's it's legislative break. There's not a lot happening in Sacramento. Most lawmakers went back to their oh, districts. Oh, is that, is, is that your side dish? Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing. I got nothing, John. Um, no, but most lawmakers are back in their districts, you know, probably meeting with constituents, maybe doing a little family vacation to their own. But we saw two Assembly Democrats do something kind of fun this week. Um, Jimmy Gomez from East L.A. and David Chu from San Francisco did a district swap. Um, and if you follow both of them on Twitter, you know all about it because they were both tweeting vociferously this week. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, Gomez went to a Giants game. He toured a, a recycling plant in San Francisco. He went to Twitter. Uh, David Chu went apparently kayaking in, like, the L.A. River. He <laughs> went to the Dodger Stadium. He toured, I think, Homeboy Industries. Um and it was fun. It was fun. You know, there was a lot of jokes about the Giants and the Dodgers rivalry, but there was also some seriousness. And, and, and you know, they both met with uh, each city's respective mayor. Um, it was it was just interesting to watch. And it, it, it was, a I thought, a creative and sort of fun way to for them to expand their view. And, and an important thing, you know, beyond just like the the fun part of it. I think one of the, you know, challenges of the assembly is you have 80 lawmakers from really different districts. And so to kind of go and and do the swap and get a kind of flavor of of the challenges and strengths of another member's district, I'm sure will, you know, at least make both of them approach some issues a little differently. So kudos to them. Uh, Glad glad I got to follow their exploits on Twitter and go Giants. Oh, the 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 bizarreities <laughs> of um, of summer vacations, I guess we call that one. So uh, my side dish uh, this week, you can find me on Twitter at John Myers. Is um, it may not be the final chapter, but it's kind of the it's kind of the final chapter of the part we were doing on one part of the project that Marisa and I have been working on uh, over the last few months, and we have some more coming uh, soon. So stay tuned for that. Um, looking at how influence works in government. We call it California political muscle. And so as part of that, um, I had done a story about how bills are written at the Capitol, uh, bills that are sponsored and written often by outside groups and submitted, uh, and then also bills that um, legislators have drafted for outside groups, privately, quietly, uh, Mm -hmm. unbacked bills. And so we had asked the question um, of every member of the legislature uh, to at, what would they tell us about the number of uh, bills they had submitted to the legislature's lawyers, unbacked as it's called, uh, not with their backing, just to be drafted and resubmitted. And again, often uh, drafted for interest groups. So uh, as I said online, score one for secrecy. We spent about eight <laughs> weeks asking 120 legislators. And we only got answers back, sort of answers, from 17. So 86% of the legislature 
simply refused to respond to the phone calls and emails. Shout out to Guy Marzarati, one of our producers and others who did some of this. Um, wouldn't say anything at all. And, you know, I had one, uh, one top-ranking staffer to a legislator tell me, again, not for attribution, not going on the record, <laughs> that, well, people won't understand that information if we give it out. And, you know, my response is, well, you know, maybe we should try to explain some of that, you know, that, uh, again, <sighs> the, the goal of the project just being transparency, but uh, 17, and, that was and you can the, see them. I was going to say that was one of the l- less defensive answers. Right, right. <laughs> you got. So if you, go to, if you go to kqed.org slash political muscle, you can see the story. We have a nice little um, uh, chart built by our online producer, Lisa Pickoff-White, and you can see who answered us and who didn't answer us and, you know. Uh, we'll kind of leave it at that for now in terms of that issue of uh, of transparency. Okay, so let's talk about our uh, final topic, which is uh, not really a topic. I think it's topics plural. Um, as I said earlier, uh, in my best uh, jeopardy, I'm going to take political potpourri for a thousand. Uh, so these are a few ideas that were thrown out there. Um, Let's see. So I've got a list here. Let's uh, start right from the top. So a tweet from uh, Austin Webster, shout out to Austin, wanted to talk about the recall efforts of Richard Pan, the state senator from Sacramento, who has um, uh, critics of his have filed a um, petition to recall him, to remove him from office. And they are all about SB 277, the bill that uh, he uh, wrote and the governor signed that would uh, limit uh, pretty substantially, any exemptions from vaccines for public school children. Uh, you know, don't know what we should say here. I mean, it's hard to recall a, a, yeah. a sitting legislator. Especially on one issue that, like, right. maybe 5% of the population feels as strongly about as the folks who, maybe 10, I don't know. I, I, you know, but, like, I, I, I would be really surprised if this uh, effort, you know, succeeded. It's 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 hard to recall anybody. I mean, you know, we have a sheriff in San Francisco who pled guilty to a misdemeanor domestic violence attack and didn't get recalled. So, well, and out. first of all, too. Uh, so let's look at the threshold really quickly. So they've got a. It's it's all based on how many uh, votes were cast, and so he was elected in 2014. Um, so roughly, I've done the rough math, roughly uh, the supporters of a recall would have to gather about 36,000 signatures to force a recall election. And even if they do that, and, and, and we should point out that Democrats are not taking this as uh, unserious, like they've actually formed a committee yeah. and uh, hired a top-notch campaign advisor uh, for the, uh, to protect Dr. Pan's job. But to your point, Marisa, then the question becomes, do you measure the legislator on one issue? And that's and historically, legislative recall elections have been very tough to do. We've really only had in modern times. Uh, shout out to uh, Alex Vasser, who will uh, is the historian of the Capitol. But really, mm-hmm. only only those recalls during the Willie Brown drama of the early 90s um, of uh, Doris Allen and the. Uh, the Horcher, Paul Horcher, uh, these Republicans who had supported the extension of the Willie Brown uh, right. dynasty. Uh, but other than that, it's been really hard to remove somebody, um, except for those guys and Gray Davis. But that's another well, podcast. And, and, and two things. I mean, they they may well be able to get this on the ballot, although 36,000 signatures in one district is, is a lot harder than, you know, 
in a statewide. Um, but to have the money, yeah, to make this successful, to really speak to to voters and convince them that this one bill is worthy of Pan's recall, you know, I don't, I, I don't see that happening. The other interesting thing is there's um, opponents of SB 277, the vaccine bill, have a referendum out to overturn it, um, and so like you have to also question, you know, how much money and and sort of how many people do they have behind this? Are they splitting their energy? You know, like, I think there's interesting questions there. Um, The referendum, which we've discussed before on this podcast, is a little more interesting because just getting it on the ballot would really halt SB 277 and have some sort of long-term impacts because of the way that the school calendar works and the vaccine calendar. Um, But, you know, I I think in some ways the recall of PAN is is a shot across the bow and a message... um, but, you know, we'll see. Stranger things yeah, will happen I mean, in politics. It, it is the process working for itself. But just really quickly, we should point out that uh, on both of those, I mean, if if the polling is right, there's some two thirds of Californians who support these new laws about vaccinations. And so um, there are very motivated people who don't like it, but there have to be enough of them. So that's kind of where we would go. So let's. Um, OK, so a couple of other potpourri uh, for not maybe a thousand now, 800. Um Uh, A couple of people asked us to talk about the Planned Parenthood saga and how it impacts California. It's obviously a much larger national story about uh, the video, but of course it does come back to California because it was all kind of a a California company that was involved. Uh, Attorney General Kamala Harris. And a Sacramento boy who did the uh, videos, right? He had some Sacramento ties. (laughs) So Attorney General Kamala Harris has um, has said she's going to investigate if the group that made the videos broke any state laws over the taping. And then we have had uh, some Republican legislators want uh, Harris to investigate Planned Parenthood. Uh, Assemblymember Melissa Melendez, a Republican from Southern California, says she wants to have Planned Parenthood audited for the tax dollars it gets. Uh, is there uh, takeaway here? Any any real political legs in California? Because it it it's hard for me to see them. No, I mean I think it speaks volumes that as Republicans call for the Attorney General to investigate Planned Parenthood, she says she's investigating the people who made the videos against Planned Parenthood. I mean, you know, this is not to say that like abortion issues don't ring true in California, and there isn't any debate. But I think when you look at the legislature, the governor. All of our statewide elected officials, um, I'm hard pressed to think of a single Democrat who's not openly pro-choice. And, you know, I I, I don't I don't know the the dollar amount, but I can't imagine the amount of money that is going to them from the state is astronomical to begin with. Um, And if you just look at the last few years, any, you know, legislation around this issue, around abortion issues, not Planned Parenthood specifically, but um, has you know again not been not controversial but generally has gotten through the legislature so yeah but you know fun to talk about (laughs) all right so onward to uh one more political potpourri from uh steve lawton shout out to steve thanks he asked two questions so uh marisa you can take whichever one you want first he wanted to know should we talk about anything else about the transportation special session coming up the legislature and then also asked about um potential front runners if Einstein doesn't run again in 2018, which we've talked about a little bit, but which one of those? Take either one. Well, I mean, the first, I would refer him back to our 
scintillating podcast of those special <laughs> sessions. You know, I don't think we know a lot more since then, especially right. about the transportation one. We have seen a few um, proposals come out around the the healthcare tax, and that is another podcast because that's really complicated. But um, yeah, DiFi. I mean, I don't know. I guess I would start with the question: Do we think she's really going to step down? I mean, she she doesn't seem like she's slowing down, <laughs> and uh, it is an interesting question because you know. I think Newsom, Gavin Newsom, our lieutenant governor, has his eyes squarely on the governor's office. Um, Antonio Villaraigosa, you know, bowed out of the boxer seat. Uh, Javier Bracera said this week that he really wants to stay in the House. So, yeah, I mean, it, it would be fascinating. I, I'm not saying there isn't a, a long roster of people who are interested, but I, I guess my first question again would be like, is, is DiFi really looking to retire? And I haven't seen any signs of that. Well, uh, I would tell people if they haven't read it, uh, read um, the New Yorker piece on Diane Feinstein. I don't know if it was last week. I can't quite remember. I had a package like everybody who reads New Yorker, New Yorker right? I've got like like three yeah. or four <laughs> of them in my bag, and I was on the plane last week, so I don't know which week I pulled, but I think it's a recent one. Anyway, they did a piece about Feinstein and the CIA and all of the documents and the torture documents, and it's a, it's a, it's actually a really nice piece about um, about who she is and kind of how she operates uh, politically, how she operated when she was in San Francisco, of course. Uh, nice little shout out to uh, Jerry Roberts, longtime political reporter uh, from the Chronicle, who saw Feinstein in those days. He's quoted in it. Anyway, I think it's a it, it it to me it goes to the point you made about whether or not she is truly slowing down or she's one who's still very much motivated. But people are going to keep talking, and I think the Becerra news in particular is one kind of interesting to me because you know Newsom and Villaraigosa and maybe even Tom Steyer. You know, are people who may have to make moves about um, uh, governor earlier, yeah. but um, but if you're if you're already in Congress and if uh, Senator Feinstein chose not to run maybe late, you've already got some kind of platform. And if you're a Javier Becerra or someone else uh, or uh, Loretta Sanchez, if she doesn't run against hand, uh, if she doesn't run against Harris, we- we'll see, we'll see. And yeah. then I was gonna and then I was gonna say on the transportation one, uh, one thing that uh, Marisa and I talked about. Is I was just fascinated with the uh, the news we saw about that bridge collapse of Interstate 10 down in Southern California, and all of the focus on the fact that that bridge was quote unquote functionally obsolete. And I do <laughs> think that you could find these events that would make uh, the public aware, raise public consciousness of the issues about transportation, which gets to the special session because part of the discussion has been about raising revenue and some new dedicated tax or something. You may be able to make the case to Californians in 2016 that it is time to fix those roads and bridges. So, yeah, no, I think I think that'll be certainly be seized on by uh, lawmakers and the governor. yeah, no, I think I think you're right about the DiFi thing. Also, you know, just this week she unveiled this this drought legislation. You know, right. I mean, <clears throat> she, I, I, you know, I don't think she's slowed down since uh, she became mayor <laughs> 35, 40 years ago. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if she's got another couple years in her in uh, D.C. And, and you know, I think that she is also very cognizant of, of the boxer race and the fact that, um She's she's one that really keeps an eye on things and is and is interested not just in her own legacy but sort of how her moves and and changes I think would impact the state and and the pol- the political 
reality is moving forward. I mean, if you look at the way she's still always kind of stayed involved in San Francisco politics on sometimes right. a minute level. So, you know, I, I'm sure those are all at play. But, you know, yeah, she uh, anything could happen. It's politics. So we'll certainly be watching all the folks we mentioned. And I'm sure there's a lot more that could come out of the woodworks in the next, what, two and a half years? So Yeah, we got of some course, time. of course. So, okay, so lightning round last one here. I'm going to throw one more in because what the hell. Um, a guy named Bert Etling. I hope I pronounced your last name right, Bert. Uh, wanted to know, should we talk about this whole unusual chatter here in the wake of uh, Boston uh, pulling out of its uh, bid for the Olympics um, about California? And then there was that weird story where the, um, the backers of, a, of an Olympics in Los Angeles called the backers of a potential Olympic bid in San Francisco and said, hey, could we partner together? So I think Bert's question was like about mayors, Garcetti or Ed Lee and the two cities. And like, is there, I don't know, is there a political liability? I'd say there's huge political liability, by the way, when you start talking about something that's going to cost that much money and entail that many things. But um, you want to take a lightning stab at that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, first of all, just fascinating at all that Boston backed out after going for it. And I think it speaks to the, a bigger climate that we've seen um, among both politicians and the public about being really wary of spending a lot of money on sporting events. You know, we've seen it with stadium deals, both in the Bay Area and Los Angeles and Southern California lately. Uh, Sacramento. Yeah, th- there was a huge backlash in um, the Bay Area over the America's Cup. So I think that, you know, both those cities would love, their mayors would love to have it as a feather in their cap, but there's also just a lot of, of fiscal and political realities attached to it. And whatever happens, um, you know, it, the Olympics are, are, I mean, they're huge. It's, it's Being able to get a philanthropic effort to a smaller event is very different, and it takes a really long time. So, you know, I, I know that both cities have been working on bids and over and over again, so it's not as if they're starting from scratch, but... We'll see. I, I would be surprised. Well, reward and risk are two things you talk about a lot in anything in life and certainly in politics. And I have a hard time seeing that there's enough reward out of that versus the downside of the risk, especially if you're someone like Eric Garcetti, who people yeah. keep kind of chatting about, about a statewide office. And like, yeah. you know, and it all goes uh, bonkers and traffic is horrible and it costs a lot of money. That is not something you want to see on a campaign ad against you if you want to run for office somewhere else. So, Yeah, I think San Francisco's mayor, for that reason, would be in a better position. And, and it is something that the city has worked on for a long time. But, you know, it's a big lift. It's heavy lift. So we'll see. It's it's I, I got to say, I mean, the Olympic Committee, they they got to be a little worried. I, the International Olympic Committee, because we're seeing this with um the Winter Olympics, I just heard a story this week about the fact that, you know, they basically begged Beijing to stay in the running. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, it, well, my favorite story of the week is Rio de Janeiro, where the testing oh, of the yeah. water is so uh, contaminated with uh, human waste that it would make Olympic athletes sick. Anyway, we're way off topic of California, <laughs> but um, I, I, I don't think uh, I don't think I see any real political upside for those guys to get involved in that. But let me. Let me give a big warm thank you to the Twitter audience, right? To the podcast yeah. audience. I mean, those Round are of a lot of questions. Round of yeah, all the way around. And some of you want us to talk about the presidential race and all of that stuff. And uh, I just have to politely say no. Uh, no, we're just <laughs> there's so there's so many places that are really good at analyzing that. We just analyze the crackpots in California. We have plenty of those to keep track of. 
We like when they come here. We like to talk about them. We'll do. We'll, we got plenty of time. Once again, 2016 is is uh, it's far away. Plenty of time. Plus, we don't want to steal too many topics that Anthony might want to jump in on uh, when he returns. You know, we got to save him a little something. So. <laughs> That uh, That's enough for this week. Uh, that's Marisa Lagos from KQED News. I'm John Myers from KQED. As always, uh, we appreciate you listening to this California Politics Podcast.